Hello and welcome to ZeroNet 50. I'm Jennifer Deloney and with me is Joel Stronberg. Hello, Joel. Hi, Jennifer. Okay, so we're still surviving social distancing and other strangeness of the day. Yes, here, here, here we're not only social distancing, we're surviving the heat as well. It's been oh. just beastly here. I guess there's something to this climate warming stuff after mm. all. Yeah, I guess so. Well, we are having a lovely, lovely summer in Vermont, so I'm not going to complain. Oh, if <laughs> yeah, you, give if, me six if it, months. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. Well, if it's possible, blow some of that cool air down here. Um, yes, so. I will. <laughs> well, <clears throat> speaking of my backyard, uh, we have seen a an interesting set of uh, circumstances here develop in the state um, in Vermont in the past few weeks. Um, people watching the progress of the Global Warming Solutions Act in Vermont, which is supposed to mirror uh, similar acts in surrounding states, uh, they weren't very surprised to see that the House passed the legislation, but they were especially surprised when the Senate passed it on June 25th. So this is very fresh here um, and by a pretty good margin. Uh, it was 22 to 6. So people were, I mean, the the regular holdouts were the regular, uh, and those were expected, but um, it, that it was so popular was uh, pretty interesting. Uh, the legislation hits the state's greenhouse gas reduction goals pretty hard, seeking to turn those goals into mandates, which it's never been before, uh, and sets the first reduction target to 26% below 2005 levels by 2025 oh. used to be that they were targeting 1990 levels so that's a huge jump in terms of you know what their baseline target is um, and setting that by 2025 is not a lot of time given the state's lack of progress to this point um, and the ultimate goal which is supposed to align the um, the mandates with the Paris Agreement is a uh, net zero emissions by 2050. So the plan for how the state would achieve that first goal wouldn't be framed until the end of next year. So that's 2021. And then it needs to be reviewed and adopted. And I don't foresee anything being active until the end of 2022 so that leaves three years to meet the first target and wow. you know if someone's going to ask is vermont going to do that i mean i would give a resounding no i i trust that you know we're a fairly progressive and environmentally friendly place but we've shown that it that it hasn't been able to do that so far um the state's 2007 emissions law which is that first one that we're trying to turn into from goals to mandates called for a 50% reduction in emissions uh, below 1990 levels by 2028. And our leadership said earlier this year that there was no way we were gonna make that target. Um, emissions in fact have increased. Uh, they're like 16% higher three years ago than the 1990 levels. Uh, so, why? Yep. Uh, well, that's specifically because we have some pretty standard culprits like high heating sector emissions from a ridiculously long winter for Vermonters with few resources to transition to lower emitting heating options. And the state has done little to real t retool the infrastructure to make those lower emitting options available. Mm. Um, and then you tag on top of that the transportation sector, sector which we, we know has to 
completely be overhauled across the way for us to meet any of our country's goals. Um, and it, it hasn't budged in Vermont. Last year, the state had about 3,000 electric vehicles on the road, and I've seen an analysis suggesting that the state needs to have close to 100,000 vehicles by 2025 to reach anything like targets that align with the Paris Agreement. So, you know, those are just two of the, mm -hmm. the really top factors. Um, and so they would go aggressively in terms of m making either of those things affordable for Vermonters who traditionally, you know, have, uh, you know, high cost of living here and not a lot of, you know, big uh, opportunities for making money. Uh, I don't know how they think they're going to do it, but that's what this particular um, approach is supposed to be about is solving those issues. Um, so Vermont has a Democratic controlled House and Senate and the governor, who's a Republican, has concerns about the bill, but he hasn't made a whole lot of noise about opposing it, which is fairly typical for him. He's he, he lays low about a lot of things. He's done um, an aggressive job with the pandemic, but mostly he's, he's fairly mild mannered. Um, his biggest concern is that the Global Warming Solutions Act allows individuals to sue the state if it doesn't meet the targets. And he says those court battles would be costly, which of course they would. Um, and Vermont's conservative think tank, the Ethan Allen Institute, came forward with its um, concerns. So the Institute is a uh, free society think tank. They want... Um, free market, basically. And it says that the Global Warming Solutions Act is set up to circumvent regular government processes because it, it creates a council to develop the new emissions reduction plan. And then the, uh, the state's environmental agency, the Agency of Natural Resources, gets to reduce, review that plan and then create the process to accomplish the goals. So any sort of like, you know, entity that we traditionally turn to for rate making and, you know, allowing public input and all of that kind of gets sideswiped. And that makes people really nervous, as you can imagine. I can. Is that even <laughs> legal? I mean, most, I mean, well, most states, uh, it's not a flip question. I mean, most right. states have some kind of uh, guaranteed public input um, in the regulatory process. Right. Well, I I know that they they plan to have public input, but it's not one of those situations where it's a it doesn't appear to be a set regulatory process mm. like we're accustomed to, like we're mm. very used to, um, and that just seems really surprising that anybody would get behind it. Right. So, well, and I'm not being an, I'm certainly not being an expert yep. or even very familiar with Vermont law. Right, I would also right. think that. Um, that there would be a, a, a conflict between the regulatory, with the role of the regulatory agency yeah. um, and the role of the legislature and whether that it is a constitutional issue or not, I, I don't know, but I'm sure that it would have some uh, legal implications and, and mm -hmm. that citizen lawsuits would come from both sides in this case. Yes, that's, I absolutely would agree with that. And, and certainly from uh, pushed by entities like the Ethan Allen Institute. Right. Um, so uh, the Institute also says that the, the state currently has way better things to be thinking about than, uh, you know, with the handling of the economic fallout from the pandemic and that 
this that they should put the uh, Global Warming Solutions Act in the trash where it belongs. So, you know, that's how against it they are, which, you know, not really surprising messaging, but there it is. Uh, so basically where we're all at right now with that uh, legislation is that the House, which would normally be adjourned for the year, has a different schedule because of the upheaval from the governor's stay home to stay safe order in the spring. Uh, so they are adjourned right now, but they're going to reconvene at the end of August. And the Speaker of the House says they will take up the Global Warming Solutions Act again then. And mm. now we will see you know what it comes next i i wasn't able to dig through to see um you know more about what might happen to it then but certainly we will find out but um but interestingly in the meantime vermonters have other things to be thinking about because they're adjusting to two environmentally focused laws that went into effect july 1st uh first is a uh single-use plastics ban uh that began on the first and the core of that is basically forcing shoppers to pay 10 cents for a plastic bag if they want one and uh they'll also have to ask for a plastic straw and they there is a complete ban on plastic stirrers so those have to be replaced entirely by things like wooden stirrers and then secondly we had a food scraps uh law take place on July 1st, and that means that they're, those food scraps are no longer allowed in our landfills, and basically nobody's going to be checking for compliance on that front, but it does raise the bar on composting as a sector for, for the state, um, and it, you know, it's been a long time since we started recycling, and now it's just sort of commonplace, so I expect in five or ten years it'll follow suit. Just all, all interesting changes, but there are a lot of grumpy people about it. <laughs> uh, they are. Just, uh, just a you know, comment on the single-use plastic uh, yep. uh, in the plastic bags in stores. Down here, for example, um, a number of the stores are uh, will not allow you to bring in uh, your own bag. Uh, because of the COVID-19 possibility that, right. uh, um, which, I mean, you know, there's a case where uh, intentions can conflict with each other in, yep. in sometimes very odd ways. And um, sometimes that can be allowed for in a policy and other times it's not allowed for and often because it never really occurred to anyone that, you know, that, a, that a pandemic somehow would prevent <laughs> right. you from using, um, you know, a canvas bag. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they faced that question here, and the legislature was asked to consider um, pausing the the effective date. And then, uh, I guess our health department came forward and said, "No, there's no um, there's no concern about the uh, personal bags causing a spread." So they decided to go forward with it. But our grocery stores all were like, "No, you can't bring those in for a long time." And right. then. The week before the ban went into effect, the grocer, the checkout people were all telling you, oh, next week we are going to charge you for bags, so bring your own in. And we're like, okay, so what is it? What, what, <laughs> which I know, right. I mean, well, here are a number of the stores, I mean, they've actually put out tables um, outside the, you know, the doors. Um, uh -huh. so people have some place to put the plastic bags that transfer into their canvas bags and you know right right i wonder too whether there are not more germs on the tables than there were yeah. on the bags right um, and it's well we made the people put the um food back in the basket and we wheeled it to the back of our car and put it in our own bags yeah. 
so we were able to get around it that way. Um, and then also, you know, I see other people making the baggers bag their stuff. I'm like, bag your own stuff. Mm-hmm. You, you have hands and you don't want to worry about this right. transfer. So do something about it. So right. it's it's completely fascinating, all of it to me. Um, so that is a quick look at what's going on state level. But I, I did also want to touch on some stuff that's happened federal level because last week was also interesting uh, in your backyard. Um, for the start of July, we saw activity from the U.S. House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis, which released its, quote, Congressional Action Plan for a Clean Energy Economy and a Healthy, Resilient, and Just America. And and uh, there's so much involved in that headline that you and I could talk for at least another hour. Um, but ultimately, it, this this plan is recommendations for a zero net 50 pathway, right? And yeah, there are that, a lot that, that, of that, other things right. concerned in it. That, that's exactly right. And actually, um, just uh, before I give a little bit more on the detail, um, yeah. if people want to get the plan, they can go to climate crisis, all one word, dot mm-hmm. house, dot gov, um, and it'll take you to the plan, um, which is 532 pages. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's the a little bit of history on this. The, the, the select committee, as a select committee, the um, it cannot come up with legislation. Um, basically, it's one of the limitations. The two major li- limitations of a select committee is um, that they don't write legislation and they can't have subpoena power. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the way this this plan was developed um, was also done only by the Democrats on the crisis committee. And it is a it's an amalgam, I think, pretty much of uh, a lot of the major themes that have been uh, kicking around the Democratic House, um, at least for the last year or so, um, including the Green New Deal, uh, as far as the concepts were concerned. If you remember, the Green New Deal actually never was turned into legislation. It was Mm -hmm. basically a a resolution, a two-page resolution that that spoke in generalities. Um, To a certain extent, the solving the climate crisis plan is also a generality of of 532 pages. Um, And it it goes through the the, uh, the checkpoints of a lot of things. I mean, it talks it talks about actually establishing a national clean energy standard. Um, mm-hmm. It also talks about carbon pricing, uh, and it doesn't resolve those differences. <clears throat> excuse me, in the least, it just it indicates that they're both they are both tools to be used. Um, it also establishes um, uh, a date. Um, where the nation would be actually net zero emitters, uh, which is 2050, and compared to the Green New Deal, for example, that's 20 years beyond that deadline. Right. Um, I think the, I mean, it, it sets, it talks about uh, zero emission cars. Uh, it sets a standard uh, earlier than than 2050 for that. So they they stage in um, a number of uh, targets, uh, methane emissions, uh, electric cars, um, investment scenarios, and what have you. One of the interesting things on this was that in the past, the, the House Energy and, and Commerce Committee um, also wrote a bill, which is actually 100 and some pages more than this particular plan, and, and they're very, they're, they paralleled um, in a lot of ways. In that case, the Republicans on the committee 
uh, we're just in an uproar now. Now, I mean, the concept of they, you know, they protest too much is probably accurate in this case. Um, I mean, it's not as if they were going to. The Republicans on that committee were going to be um, proposing anything nearly as as um, far-reaching as the Democrats did. But the difference in the, on the select committee was that Garrett Graves, who was the uh, ranking minority member, uh, he's a representative um, from Louisiana and, and clearly um, owes part of his his election to the oil and gas interests, wasn't wasn't vicious about um, his comments. I mean, basically, what he said was. You know, we'd have liked to have a more bi bipartisan approach, um, mm -hmm. but now that the plan is out, we still expect to have a bipartisan discussion, which which I think, I mean, is, I'm not sure what exactly what it's symptomatic of, although I'd like to think that it follows along the trend that has been going on in the House, at least, um, where House Republicans are being more receptive to the conversation. Now, again, they're not, mm -hmm. they don't go nearly as far, but but they have at least been, they've been admitting to the fact that climate change is real, and they've come up with some of their own proposals. The the, the billion trees, for example, was um, was one of their proposals, and, and it um, actually came from another Louisiana, um, or another Southern Congressman, um, and it was to reforest the nation, basically. Now, mm -hmm. The, this bill, this plan is is really just that. It's only a plan. Um, it's not going to be turned into legislation um, this year, at least. I think what it does do, however, is it it it's another it's another presentation of of uh, of the parameters that the Democrats are thinking of as far as energy and climate legislation is concerned. Also this week, um, the Democrats have come out with two other pieces of legislation. One was a, is a $1.5 trillion infrastructure bill uh, uh, that is very, very heavily um, reliant on green provisions. I mean, it too talks about uh, the electrification of, of transportation, both buses and cars. Um, it talks about energy efficiency in, in housing. The, the bill is called the Moving Forward Bill. Um, and it is an infrastructure bill, not an infrastructure bill that actually bears anything in common with was what um, the White House has talked about as as an infrastructure bill. In fact, one of the standing jokes here in Washington is that every other week seems to be infrastructure week. Um, <laughs> and I mean, uh, either the Democrats are calling it that or the White House is calling it that. Um, and this is actually the first bill that actually came out that way. Um, now, it's clear that this isn't, I mean, McConnell, um, Majority Leader in the Senate, Mitch McConnell, has already indicated that I mean, it's dead on arrival. Um, and the Democrats know this. I mean, they know that all the legislation that's coming out of the House is going to be dead on arrival, um, especially in the climate area. Um, they also, I mean, the, the Democrats also came out um, with legislation that um, is focused very much um, on the energy issues, and that too is just going to be stuck there. But again, I think that what people have to to look at is how this is a reflection of democratic thinking. Uh, and again, the democratic 
committee structure in the House has actually been very busy. There's a transportation, um, kind of an omnibus transportation bill um, that was passed out of committee as well. And um, the elements of that are seen in um, are seen in the crisis crisis plan. Um, the crisis plan seems to have kind of become the the formal placeholder um, for what was the, uh, uh, the the clean energy plan that the uh, Energy and Commerce uh, Committee had come out with. That um, I haven't compared the two, to be honest with you. That I mean, it's just it's a major undertaking, and I'll I'll get to most of it. But I mean, we're talking about bills that are that are literally um, 500 plus pages long, and I mean the individual provisions. I think the uh, there are a couple of things that are also very interesting. That the Democrats are beginning to look at energy efficiency more, um, and I attribute this actually to the rise of the uh, environmental justice movement that has come up in the same in, in, at the same time with the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, that that what we're seeing initially we've seen you know the Green New Deal was very heavily environmentally just um, in, in its uh, in, in its focus. I mean, it didn't talk just about energy. I mean, he talked about the environmental uh, dangers that, that uh, community, at-risk communities, communities of color um, have always faced. I mean, wh where do people put um, dirty coal plants? Generally right next to low-income communities. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, it's it's been well documented. That, I mean, the health impacts um, that at-risk communities, otherwise at-risk communities um, are subjected to are real. Um, and so what we're seeing is energy and environment being spoken of, I think, in, in, in the same breath, which by my way of thinking is something that it's been needed for a very long time and which the clean energy community has not been terribly good at doing. Um, and part of this, I think, is because uh, you know, there, there's, it's an industry. I mean, whatever else you say about wind and solar, um, it's an industry. And as it's gotten commercially viable, it takes on the characteristics of an industry, I mean, whether it's natural gas or coal. Um, and we've seen this before in the labor movement, for example, when, you know, in the early stages of organizing and stuff, I mean, you're, it's the underdog um, and it fights for recognition. And, but, you know, as, as labor became, as little labor became big labor, some of the same problems uh, crept in to big labor that the, the workers were complaining of when, uh, when they were opposed to big industry. Um, and so, I mean, for example, we see, we'll, we'll see in a piece of legislation, uh, in fact, the infrastructure bill, uh, the 1.5 trillion, also includes extenders for wind and solar. Um, mm. And that obviously will always bring out the support of the wind and solar industries. Right. In the past, what I've seen, um, uh, and you know, some of the industry people may may take exception to this, but what I see is the industry people will fight for their the tax portions of a bill, but mm -hmm. they don't really do anything more about the climate portions of the bill, and so you get this kind of uh, systemic conflict between climate and energy. Um, yeah. And I think now that we've, I mean, what we've seen in the last couple of months um, as the as the injustice of 
a lot of things, including you know murders committed by police forces and the marches in the street, that that justice, social, environmental, climate, um, is now front and center. And I don't think that's going away anytime soon. It's certainly going to be something that that actually takes center stage and is taking center stage now as far as the presidential elections are concerned. The the it's clear that that Trump is, I mean, is is going to make this into a culture war. I mean, he is making this into yeah. a culture war. I mean, in in very odd ways. I mean, here's a president that says he is not going to sign the the uh, Defense Appropriation Act um, if it includes a clause that requires renaming the six or seven military bases that were named after Confederate generals. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, that is a cultural question. I mean, here's a president that says, you know, I'm all in favor of the military and, and he goes through that entire line. But now, I mean, the, the military leaders are saying we don't want, I mean, it's right to change the name of these, the, mm -hmm. these bases. And Trump is saying, no, it's not. And I'm not going to sign a bill that would have ordinarily been I mean, a cornerstone of, of, of Trumpian policy. It's a cornerstone of, of conservative Republican policy for that mm -hmm. matter, the Defense Authorization Acts, and he's going to hold it up. Now, the other thing that happened, and he's going to hold it up clearly because for a cultural issue. I mean, he's appealing to somebody by saying that, you know, we don't want Fort Hood named after a general that basically is treasonous. He left, you know, he left the Union Army to fight against the Union. Um, that in anybody's book is treason. I mean, that, I, I, and uh, I have different, I mean, I, I don't mean that as harshly perhaps as it sounds, but, mm -hmm. but the fact it is that it's treason. Okay. So who is he appealing to on this? Well, I mean, he's appealing to his core constituency. Yeah. We're also seeing this in climate for some strange reason. Um, over the last several weeks, Trump has been tweeting, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this, the Defense Authorization Act, the, the Black Lives Matter people are thugs and, and what have you. On several occasions, he's, he's actually written the Green New Deal into his tweets, calling it evidence of socialism and fascism and Antifa. And in his mind, the Green New Deal has now become a cultural issue. And, right. and number one, that, I mean, that's going to have trouble resonating with a number of people I mean, and not just Democrats either, because I mean, we're talking about something in the nature of another pandemic. I mean, I think one of the things that we're seeing with, with the contagion is that the question of science and science's relationship to policy are clearly front and center on this. And I mean, there, there are these movements to, to silence Dr. Fauci and, and Dr. Uh, Burke, uh, because why? Well, because they don't like the, the the truth of the fact that, you know, if you go out there and crowd people with no masks and in advance of having a, a pandemic under control, what's going to happen? You're going to have more of a pandemic. Um, now, I mean, that's just science. I mean, that's not, that's not really a subject for debate, you would think, but it is. Um, and it's a debate that he's going to be taking with him throughout the entire campaign. And so mm -hmm. in a very strange way, energy and climate um, have now become front and center and not, I mean, you know, before the pandemic, 
um, it, it was very, it was high on voter lists on this. Um, I mean, people literally in the pre-pandemic primaries had listed environment, climate um, as their number one concern. Um, and then people thought that, well, okay, now with the pandemic, that's going to take a back seat. Well, it hasn't taken a back seat. And if anything, it's taken on an additional seat in the vehicle, because not only now is it not, I mean, not only is it now being talked about as, uh, as, a, as a similar existential threat, you know, to the, to the future of the nation, but we're seeing studies that show that COVID-19 sufferers are, are suffering more um, because of bad environment. We're seeing that, you know, part of the, the higher incidence um, in at-risk communities and, and in communities of color um, are there because of environmental policies, um, because of environmental justice policies, because of social justice policies. And so this is getting wrapped in. And if it wasn't enough for the Democrats to wrap it in, now Trump is wrapping it in. So this is something that that I think is, is very, very interesting. And, and at least in the short run, what's going to happen is that a lot of separate forces will be moving in the same direction. And I think that's true of a number of the Republicans as well. I mean, the Republicans in the House, you know, had already begun talking about environment. Um, the ones in the Senate are beginning to take exception to Trump. And I think part of the exception ultimately will be on this issue of climate, not because they want to make the issue um, something that's talked about uh, during the election. In fact, my guess is they don't want to make it an issue that's being talked about um, during the election, but he is going to make it an issue that's talked about in the election, and it's there. I mean, it's like, you know, the 800-pound elephant, but this time that elephant's going to be talked about differently. And I think that one of the things that's going to happen is that the that there are going to be ultimately conflicts um, between the clean energy industries and the environmental communities, and it may come out in a passive way. I mean, again, it may not be that they they oppose a bill. I've, in my experience, um, the solar people don't oppose legislation unless it's fossil legislation. Mm -hmm. They just don't talk about being in support of it, right. um, and which to me is, I mean, it's still. A failing, but I think mm -hmm. that, that that a lot of these disparate forces um, are going to find themselves in the same room, um, both before and after the election. And I, and again, nothing is going to happen substantively as far as Congress is concerned. Um, I think what's going to happen is that the the there will be another stimulus package, um, or at least there'll be an attempt at a stimulus package. Now, now, we're getting a separation here as well. Trump has talked about uh, being in favor of another stimulus, and part of his part of his stimulus thinking seems to be sending checks out to everybody, which, mm -hmm. which clearly is something that he, it's not very surprising in the sense that the economy is not, is not where he had hoped it would be. He can't take credit for, I mean, for a booming economy because the economy isn't booming anymore. Um, and what he's going to do is he's going to try to buy his way into, you know, buy votes with, with checks. And at least in that regard, he's probably no different than 99.9% .9 of the politicians in the world. But the fact of the matter is that uh, the Senate, and especially Senate Majority Leader McConnell, um, just 
hates the concept of sending more checks to people and another two or three trillion dollars. I mean, at, at heart, these guys are still fiscal conservatives. And yet, in practice, um, I mean, there's been no administration and no period of Republican um, dominance in Congress that has ever spent more money. I mean, we the, the U.S. deficit is now, what, it's over four trillion dollars. I mean, and this is this is something that I mean that the true conservatives um, have got to be losing sleep over at night. They're going to get pushed into a corner now. Whether or not Trump is going to be able to prevail on the stimulus checks or not, I'm not sure. Democrats are probably more supportive of that, and they're certainly more supportive of sending money to states that you know whose whose budgets have been absolutely devastated by 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 the contagion and. Um, they're rolling back programs, electric vehicle programs, social justice programs that they can't, they just don't have the money for because because the money is going into making up the deficits they're experiencing because of the pandemic. So the Democrats are going to want to be sending money out to them. They're going to be want to sending out money to the hospitals. Um, I think they will raise they will raise once again certain energy elements, possibly tax extenders on the solar and wind. They tried that initially in the in the um, CARES Act, uh, the $2.2 trillion one that, that, that had passed a few mm-hmm. months ago. Uh, yeah. The Republicans pushed back on it. And my guess is that, that the Democrats will raise this issue within the stimulus um, context, but they're not going to hold on for it. I mean, the, there's so little time left. When you think about it, the Congress is now out for their two-week Fourth of July um, uh, vacation. They're mm-hmm. going to come back in, um, and it's probably sometime in the second week of July. They'll be looking especially at issues that need to be dealt with, such as uh, passing whatever appropriations or um, uh, or resolutions, appropriation resolutions need to be at least begun to be worked on now. Um, it's probably going to be the stimulus issue um, being discussed. There'll be a couple of uh, Defense Act uh, will also be discussed. They just don't have a lot of time between then, when they come back in July and when the uh, conventions start in August. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were talking maybe three weeks, and then yeah. the conventions are going to start. Uh, these guys are going to go out and campaign. I mean, that's they, they've got to take care of themselves and their party. Um, mm-hmm. And so there's not going to be time, a lot of time left uh, between the conventions and the election. Again, budget issues are going to dominate. They, I mean, you either have to have a continuing resolution or you have to have signed appropriation bills. Um, then the election is going to come and... You can only imagine what's going to happen following the election. So there's no real chance of major climate legislation, but there is certainly a lot of discussion going on. And I think people are going to begin to line up behind certain provisions. The other thing that I see coming down the pike is the rise of progressives um, in the Democratic Party. Uh, We're we're. We're seeing a merging of sorts within the party. Um, the Sanders and Biden uh, camps have actually created some uh, uh, mutual committees, one of which is actually climate. Um, and there are other evidences within the, uh, the convention structure, platform committees and stuff, where the sides are coming somewhat together anyway. 
the Sunrise Movement um, spoke very favorably about the uh, Select Committee's crisis plan, um, even though, again, even though the deadlines for achieving the, you know, the, the climate goals um, are years apart. But, but we're, seeing, we're seeing the dominance of let's get Trump out and Democrats in, um, kind of taking first order uh, precedence over everything else. That doesn't mean the arguments are gonna go away. And what's happening now at the, in the primary level is that another New York um, uh, representative, uh, Elliot Engel, um, is a 16-term uh, congressman, uh, also the chair of the House Foreign Relations Committee, lost his primary. Um, and who did he lose it to? He lost it to um, a, a, a progressive named Jamal uh, uh, Bowen, um, who was supported by Sanders and Ocasio-Cortez, um, the other progressives. The progressives have also been putting up candidates um, against the party's candidates in Kentucky. Um, Amy McGrath is a uh, is the Democratic uh, standard bearer now to go against McConnell, but she faced in the in the last four weeks of her primary um, a real threat from another progressive uh, candidate, uh, Charles Booker, um, who is a state uh, legislator, uh, uh, a black state legislator. Um, and McGrath, for example, raised $42 million for her primary, which is oh. just unheard of. Yeah. Um, and she raised it because Democrats, I mean, establishment Democrats, poured money into her campaign. She, she's actually a, uh, she's a, uh, a fighter pilot, uh, retired obviously. Um, and they want to see McConnell get out. Um, but that kind of money versus the progressive who raised what, maybe $2 million um, if he was lucky and still came up in, to become a threat. And there are other threats um, in Texas and Colorado and other places where the progressives are getting a feel for how they can, in fact, change the, or contest against the establishment. Mm -hmm. This is something on one side that the establishment hates because who wants, I mean, those that are in would like to stay in and are right. overly pleased about people on the out wanting in. Um, but the other thing that's happening is that they're turning, I mean, the progressives are turning this into something more than Ocasio-Cortez headlines um, or Bernie Sanders headlines. That there, there is this continuing um, disruption, dis, di, disruption of the, uh, of the, of stable patterns in democratic districts and in Republican as well. I mean, the, the, the issue of people feeling uncomfortable with establishment politicians, which is actually what put Trump in, into power, yes, um, that's never gone away. And the mm -hmm. fact is that it's not going to go away. And I think that Biden is being looked at. He's, he's being looked at for a number of reasons, not the least of which is that he's not Trump. But he's also, in a sense, a, a, a calming influence. I mean, he's somebody that has shown himself to be able to reach out across the differences between elements of the Democratic Party. And he's getting some credit for that. Um, initially, he didn't. I mean, as long as the primary fight was, you know, was a slugfest um, between 
between progressives and establishment, then that wasn't going to, that wasn't happening. Once he's gotten it, it is happening, but it's a temporary piece, I think, that, that the issue of establishment politicians being acceptable these days is not, is not true. An alternative to Trump is true, um, and a willingness on the part of people to do what's necessary to get through November. But I think what's going to happen after November is that we're going to see a lot of conflicts. And um, so I look at this the, the, this legislation, all the proposals that are coming up, and the platform committee that whatever the platform com committee comes up with in the at the Democratic Convention is also going to be very, very telling. Because what we've seen prior to this, to the run-up, for example, is that the 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 group that Sanders and Biden put together to look at climate issues um, has actually gone out and started publicizing its own recommendations in advance of the platform committee. And why are they doing that? Because they want to increase their standing to be able to negotiate with the platform committee. Mm -hmm. And, you know, once you get into these closed door sessions on the platform, gonna, there's going to be compromise. And, Again, the compromises will be acceptable to a certain extent, um, and people will be quiet to a certain extent, but that doesn't imply capitulation. And so I think that, that what will happen um, post-November, if Biden wins and the Democrats um, take the House and Senate, or if they even just take the House and the White House, is that there's going to be a lot of discussion going on that is somewhat uh, reflective of the of the of the battles that went on at the beginning of this Congress with with the squad of four Ocasio Cortez and, and the other progressive women of color that came in because the Democrats really have not yet decided who they are and what they're going to push forward. Again, mm -hmm. I think that the social issues, the the Black Lives Matter movement, um, the the fact that I mean the, the nation is now having to come to grips with questions that it just didn't answer before. I mean, mm -hmm. as we, and they're, they're complicated. I mean, how many, I mean, I know people and in my own mind, for example, I can see not changing the name of Fort Hood. Um, and I can see a problem with, you know, elevating uh, Confederate generals um, to the status of national heroes. Mm -hmm. But what about Jefferson and Washington? Um, slave owners, um, and how do you how do you reconcile what they did to create uh, the Constitution, for example, and, and mm -hmm. you know create a democratic republic, and the owning of slaves? Now, morally, mm -hmm. it's just awful, um, and it is as reprehensible as people say it is. But how do you accommodate that in the history of our nation? Right. It's, whether we like it or not, it's still part of the history. Now, again, Trump is going to make make this. He's going to make this into an issue, and unfortunately, I think he's going to make it into a binary issue. I mean, mm. you know, either you accept, you know, Confederate generals, um, you know, as part of the heroes of the United States, or you don't. Um, well, you know, that what is that? that that's going to create a, a divisiveness of a different nature, I think, than, than, than what we've seen so far. It's going to be a, a, a deeper divisiveness than just simple partisanship. And right. I think but that, he loves that. That's what he thrives on. He does. I mean, it's chaos. I mean, chaos is what it, what he, what he banks on. Um, mm -hmm. And 
we're going to be entering a period where he's going to be increasing the chaos in ways that we shouldn't even have to imagine. And I think right, but we can't imagine yet, and it's frightening. No, it is frightening because there's no, I mean, we don't know where it's going to come from, and he doesn't follow any normal patterns. I mean, not, not even of common currency. Um, he, he just does it to cause trouble. Um, and I think in, in some sense, like I said, I think he's going to make the Green New Deal so much of his, his philosophy that he's actually going to be doing the climate people a favor because he's so excessive about stuff. But there are other things that, that I like said, there's the, these issues have not separated out in a way that um, the, the, the dialogue has been kind of set in a way that you could actually come to conclusions on things. And, they, and, and you know, we're going we're gonna to see this kind of chaos at least through the first six or seven months of a new administration, at least the six or seven months of a new administration. You know, we talked earlier um, today, actually, uh, before we got onto the podcast, about the fact that the last time a select committee that, uh, that Speaker Pelosi put together a select energy committee, um, they came out with a cap, uh, cap and trade bill that the Democrats who controlled the Senate wouldn't even let come to the floor. Mm -hmm. uh, and so now we're talking about something that I think the Democrats, in a sense, are more open to compromise now, but they don't know what it is that they're compromising. And so what uh, and so what they're doing is they're kind of throwing into 600 pages of legislation everything in the kitchen sink. Yeah. I'm not sure, for example, whether a clean energy standard, a national clean energy standard, which you know, and we've spoken about before on the program that I'm in favor of, um, can actually be enacted at the same time a carbon price can. Um, not only do I think they somewhat they, they conflict, but um, in in principle, um, but there are other things that conflict uh, in a way that uh, will prevent any kind of compromise. And, and specifically in this case, for example, the um, the carbon, the the uh, Baker Schultz bill, which is the carbon price um, bill that not only that Republicans are pushing, like like Baker and Schultz, um, but uh, Ernie Moniz, uh, the past the uh, Democratic uh, Secretary of Energy under Obama, is also uh, pushing for this as well. They want to they want to relieve the fossil fuel companies um, from other regulations, and that's just not going to prove acceptable. And if if you include a clean energy standard along with a carbon tax that has provisions for um, kind of giving the fossil fuel industries a get out of jail card for free, I think what happens is that you don't get anything. I mean, you get this kind of conflict that never gets resolved. And that's something that is going to be a major challenge, even with a change of administration and mm -hmm. even with a Democratic Congress. So um, I think that these are very interesting times. And I don't mean in any way to be negative about this. I mean, I think that these conversations have been put off for way too long. Um, and they've created tensions and conflicts beneath the surface that if they don't get resolved, that there's really no way to create the, the, the sweeping climate legislation that's needed. And that means you have to support industry as well as 
um, climate justice and environmental justice. And those two things should not conflict. Um, they have conflicted, I think, in large measure because nobody's really sat down and worked through the issues. Agreed. 100%. Once again, once again, are, are you sorry you started me on this? <laughs> <laughs> no, no. We've, we have some, like you said, some very interesting times. And you know, I know there's one more thing that is near and dear to your heart and that, that you've been thinking about. <clears throat> and that is what's going on with uh, our justices. And yes. uh, if you want to take one minute and just give some preview of your thoughts there, I think we, then we can wrap up. Okay, I will. Um, one of the other things that happened over the last couple of weeks is that uh, the 200th judicial nominee um, out of the Trump administration was was approved. Mm. Um, and what happens now is that over 25% of all the judges on the federal bench are now Trump appointees. Wow. Um, he's completely filled the roster of all the appellate courts. Um, one of the things that we saw this week also, this last couple of weeks, as we saw two conservative justices, um, in Justice Roberts, the Chief Justice, um, and Justice Gorsuch, take stands that the Republican conservative and textualists just absolutely hated. And I think what we're seeing is that um, judges change when they get on the bench. And I, I see Roberts as actually being conscious of the need to be able to balance um, between the extremes. And, and this isn't always going to happen. But, you know, I've worried about the number of uh, conservative justices that are now sitting on the bench. And, you know, the, the answer to that is that the Congress and the White House have to be more specific in, in the, the work that they do. Um, and I'll be writing more on this you know, in the future. But I do think that it was interesting that especially the chief, the chief justice um, has been getting a huge amount of flack um, for the, the opinions that uh, he's come out with or the, you know, the five to four decisions, mm -hmm. uh, one on, you know, sexual discrimination um, and the other had to do with abortion and whether or not uh, laws in uh, two southern states, Texas and Louisiana, were at all constitutional. And, um, you know, I'm I'm buoyed by the fact that, you know, we have a chief justice that looks to have to have balance. Um, mm -hmm. I hope that there'll be more of that. Um, and if there's not, like I said, the, 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 the onus then falls on Congress um, to be much more specific in what it is in the laws that they pass so that they so their intent is clear and the language is clear. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's my minute. <laughs> okay, that's good. And, and you know, I, I give a little guffaw about the folks in Congress being more specific in, in their intent. But, you know, we can put it out there to the Yeah, no, uh, we, we, we can try. <laughs> I mean, you know, and it, it, it wouldn't hurt them any, although they may not agree with that. So, and, and you know, your Vermont legislature is probably, uh, you know, good testament to the fact that uh, uh, sometimes vagueness may be better. Yeah, exactly. All right. Well, I guess that wraps it up. Thank you so much for getting into the weeds with me here today. I appreciate that. I uh, appreciate the company myself. Yeah, good. And thanks, everyone, uh, for joining us today. We'll be back with more insights before the primaries, I'm sure. And you can tweet comments and questions to hashtag zero net 50 and have a great day.